suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother JS to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yes, we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through these high seas of life. Welcome to our 149th podcast, Bioblast number 16, The Titrating Toxin King, part four, subtitled a star is born. For perspective, you know, we've been discussing Mithridates, the man we've identified as the titrating toxin king, the king of Pontus on the south coast of the Black Sea, whom ruled the kingdom of Pontus and was an enemy of ancient Rome. Right now, assume the middle point of his reign was 100 BC, which is good enough for our perspective to put some perspective on the age. And his father, the previous king of Pontus, was poisoned by Mithridates' mother, the queen. She then tried to poison him. He wound up poisoning his mother. He would then poison his brother, and he would then poison his wife, who also happened to be his sister. He poisoned friends, allies, enemies, and condemned criminals. Every day he ingested poisons and their antidotes. So I think it is fair to say that when we identify him as the titrating toxin king, he was indeed intoxicated with with toxic substances. About that, there could be no doubt, and there'll be more about that later. In the meantime, we have been discussing the Eastern world, Asia Minor, the Black Sea Empire, the ancient Greek states, and the growing opposition and resentment to the tyrannical nature of an expansion of oppressive Roman rule. And the limits of tyranny and the toleration of such tyranny has often been reported in history as ultimately being determined not by the tyrant, but by the people who have been tyrannized. And it would it would prove our case in greater Anatolia and in surrounding territories. Rome and its hideous and ruinous rule by Romans was despised. A violent clash loomed between East and West. And, a, and it required only the emergence of a strong, powerful, charismatic ruler in the East to um, lead the revolution against what was in essence harsh, exploitative Roman enslavement of the people of Greece and Western Anatolia, enforced by um, skilled but brutal military commanders and their fierce, trained, disciplined, you know, effective but merciless and murderous legionnaires. Now, now, I'm going to say this in a ridiculous bit of fooling around where it is essentially unnecessary, in my opinion, to do so in this podcast, yet I do. I add this. Unlike in the age of hippies, peace and love, back when I was 15, the association released in 1968 in sunny California, along comes Mary. Well, in the first century BC, along comes Myth. And things will never be the same. 
And with his assumption of the throne of the kingdom of Pontus, the texture of affairs in Pontus and nearby lands turned more threatening, you know, more ominous and ultimately more violent as Mithridates' militancy in his strident determination to expand his kingdom in the face of and at the expense of other kings from, from, from day one on the throne left little room for anybody to compromise. You know, the Churchill um, position that Britain will never concede anything under threat has plenty of precedence uh, to be found in the ancient lands of Anatolia. As Mithridates successfully expanded his empire via his bellicose means, it was only a matter of time, only a matter of time, before a conflict with Rome was sure to follow. And when those fierce battles ensued, that period of, of time became known to history as the Mithridatic Wars. And, and these, let me tell you, were not minor clashes between powerful states. No, in, in these all-out wars for supremacy between Pontus and Rome, deaths were to be calculated not in the thousands, not in the tens of thousands, but rather in the hundreds of thousands of lives lost. And as would be the case in World War II, there would be many, many civilian casualties during the course of, of these wars. And in the course of the Mithridatic Wars, the cruelties and barbarities, barbarities committed by one belligerent served only to enrage the other, escalating the atrocities then committed by all combatants while they fought for supremacy for decades. Again, using a reference from the 1960s to describe a scenario similar in nature to something 2,000 years in the past, but which does capture the spirit and essence of both eras, Barry McGuire released a popular song in the 1960s when I was a young teenager. The song was entitled Eve of Destruction, a heart-pounding, you know, pulsating ballad describing turbulent times that were marked by oppression, violence, and a great deal of bloodshed. You know, the words, the Eastern world, it is exploding. And that's true. In, in this geographical part of the globe that Mithridates occupied, centered in northern Anatolia, ancient Greeks, um, former states within the Persian Empire, soon would be joining with the kingdom of Pontus to form the Black Sea Empire, envisioned by and, and driven by Mithridates, a vast powerful alliance of lands committed to one thing, achieving at all course, um, at all costs. Its primary objective, to resist and throw off the shackles and fetters of their enslavement forcibly placed upon victimized people, all attendant to the advance of exploitative, oppressive, cruel, and violent Roman rule. Again, relying on a silly 1971 Ringo Starr mus musical reference, you know it don't come easy. And, and from the moment he assumed the crown as king of Pontus, Mithridates would begin the process of turning his kingdom into a vast, powerful, and dominating state. 
His colossal ambition would compel him to expand the territory over which he ruled uh, in terms, you know, the French intellectual in 1948, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, relied upon in his play, um, Dirty Hands, when he wrote his famous line, by any means necessary. You know, it's an intellectual's way of saying all's fair in love and war or by hook or by crook. Mithridates set his mind to establishing the expanded territorial boundaries of Pontus beyond the Black Sea and Anatolia. And, and early in his reign, the dominoes began to fall one by one. First cultures, you know, modern Georgia, east of the Black Sea, it fell to Mithridates. Then the fierce nomadic Scythians, those northern uh, Iranians, Ukrainians, and and, and southern Russians, Central Asian peoples from the steppes who found it advantageous to align themselves with Mithridates. And after a great deal of fighting, the Crimea was annexed to the kingdom of Pontus, parts of Paphlagonia and Galatia and Cappadocia in Anatolia followed suit. And when the Romans twice provided military support for Bithynian king Nicomedes, to prevent uh, Mith- Mith- uh, Mithridates from further expansion of his kingdom in Anatolia. After that, it was then that Mithridates concluded he'd been left no choice but to expel the Romans from Asia in entirety. And he had many tools in his toolbox which he might rely upon when he needed to do so. Speaking 22 languages didn't hurt, as he could converse with the local peoples in their language without the need of an interpreter. He was knowledgeable in history, philosophy, business, trade, uh, trade policy, geography, science, politics. He was a man of tremendous intelligence with remarkable charisma and charm. You know, and as we would say today, he had plenty of people skills. And having been educated and groomed at his father's court to be a king, Mithridates was ready. And he had a physical presence and a military strength behind him that he directed. And he had a countenance, you know, a state of mind that permitted him to to be unpredictable in the demonstration of kindness and, and capable of mercy, yet with a willingness to be as ruthless and arbitrary as he ever felt he needed to be. He was a man whom was a magnet in a tack factory. He attracted people to his cause and convinced them it was their cause. He won people over, concluding as people are wont to do, deciding it's best. We need to be led. We like to be led. And if we're going to be led, it's best that we be led by a lion and not a donkey. And Mithridates proved he had the ability to, as they say, win hearts and minds, as the American military suggested, um, you know, uh, was our plan in Afghanistan and Iraq after we had initially so, so misjudged the military political quagmire in which we were so you know, mired in that part of the world in the early 2000s. That's the world that Mithridates lived in, by the way. What, what a snafu that had been. But let's retreat for a moment. Let's retreat for a moment. 
How did this man come to power? And what was it about this man, Mithridates, that attracted so many people to believe in him, to go for his cause? What were the signs of his greatness? Was he that charismatic? What exactly was it? Well, first of all, to be born a royal. Well, that's very helpful. You know, presuming one survives the intrigues of the royal uh, court which in history have proved so often to be so lethal. So there's, there's that. But keep in mind that in the second century BC, the Black Sea Kingdom of Pontus consisted of peoples highly superstitious by nature, very religious at their core, believers' heart and soul in sacred omens prognosticated by the gods. You know, predestiny, destiny, fortuna, fate. All this, all this was inviolable. They sacrificed to their deities. They read the entrails. They listened to their holy magi, all in pursuit of divine guidance. This was all very serious business at that time. So when there were heavenly signs, they were not to be ignored, or more accurately, they were ignored only at one's peril. One more silly reference. A fool never learns, and I'm going to do a very foolish thing again. There's a song in there somewhere, I think. So the ancient historian uh, Justinus, he wrote that when uh, Mithridates the sixth Jupiter was born in Sinope along the southern coast of the Black Sea in 135 BC, there appeared in the sky a comet with a curved tail that burned so brightly for 70 days that the entire night sky appeared to be on fire. I kid you not. In its greatness, it filled um, a quarter of the heavens with its brilliance and it outshone the sun while its rising and setting took a period of four hours each. You know, Chinese records confirmed the date of the long-tailed uh, star, that it appeared from out of nowhere and stretched across the heavens. And then when Mithridates reclaimed his crowd, his crown, the same curved tailed, long-tailed comet reappeared in the sky. What are the odds of that? Well, for a superstitious people, this was no, no coincidental occurrence. That's for sure. This was nothing short of an omen. And Mithridates had definitely been sent by the deities to rule their lands, to bring the peoples to prosperity, rid them from their oppression and enslavement under Roman rule. And of this, there was little doubt. Mithridates himself, for you know, obvious personal gain, he was perfectly willing not only to judge the appearances of the curved, you know, long-tailed comets as a private message from the gods that he was meant to be the man who would be king. No, he was certain of that. But he was astute enough to see the potential political advantages gained by reminding the people of the coincidental, you know, interstellar appearance of the celestial bodies at, at, at the time, both of his birth and of his ascendancy to the crown. And whenever necessary, and however necessary, you know, to eliminate any remaining doubt that he had been anointed by, and therefore was operating in full accordance with 
divine guidance, he would remind the people. Providence, of course, providing a position, a platform from which it is much easier to govern. Of that, I am sure. And, you know, we in a cynical America today might be ready to pass off the people of the 2nd and 1st century B.C. in the greater Pontus environs as being total unsophisticates, you know, near cavemen, you know, people whom thought astronomical events were signs from God, superstitious, uneducated dunces, you know, people that were easily duped and, and readily taken advantage of. However, one ought to keep in mind, one ought to remember that no less modern heroic figures than Winston Churchill and General George Patton believe that they had been predestined, you know, preordained to be um, to live lives of abundant great achievement. That was their destiny. And both, you know, would walk around battlefields, as did Napoleon, I should add, you know, seemingly impervious to the lethal risks posed by hostile enemy fire, despite the fact that they re- remained in range of those enemies' hostile guns. They just wandered around. It made their fellow soldiers very, ner- very, very nervous fully assured that they would remain unharmed. Because why? Because fortune didn't merely favor the bold. It would render them invincible in the face of that hostile fire. As Why? Because they had yet to fulfill the very mission for which they'd been fated. You know, this wasn't courage uh, on display or foolhardiness. No, it was simply the belief that one's time had not yet come and that death was not in the cards. It couldn't be because they weren't finished. As you might imagine, you know, possibly imagine, if you've listened to any, any of, of our prior podcasts, uh, Winston Churchill is my, my all-time uh, greatest hero. He just is. And he had a big ego, no doubt. And he once said, we are all worms, but I'm a glow worm. I mean, I think Churchill was joking around. I mean, I think. Still, part of me believes that Churchill believed, uh, you know, it's kind of like he adopted the viewpoint that was later taken by Muhammad Ali. It ain't bragging if you can back it up. And, And Churchill certainly backed it up. But more importantly, I have more to say about this modern view that the ancients remain susceptible to superstition, magic, and delusion, and that sophisticated people like modern Americans are not. Hmm. I have evidence that we are. We really, really are just as susceptible to idol worship, symbolism, and delusion as were the ancients. Nothing has changed. Thucydides is is right. Behavior never changes. And in our next episode, our next Bioblast number 17, the titrating Toxin King part five, I am going to prove it to you. Hey, thanks for living. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed. Bye-bye. Until next time. I am in a far-off place. Half of a world away And there's so much to do And there's so much to see Mother Nature's had her way There are mountains and valleys And beautiful hills 
Each vista's something new And though my imagination's been captured My thoughts, they return to you So can you help relieve me Of this burden on my back There's something wrong deep inside of me Or something I must lack I've got this worry you'll be leaving me And I must admit it that I'm scared So can you try